Merry Christmas. I'm Stephanie Smith. And I'm Angela Sackett. We're so glad you're joining us for our 2020 Advent study, Longing and Light. Just as God's people long for the promised Messiah to come, we savor his appearing and long for his return. During this Advent, we will see how the Gospel of John recognizes an innate longing in all of us and points us to fulfillment in Jesus. As we enter into this Christmas season, we're closing a year filled with challenges, disappointments, and shifting ground. Advent is an incredible invitation to lean forward and look up at Jesus, our hope, our anchor, and the light that shines in the darkness. Welcome to week four of Longing and Light. This is our final week. It's five days before Christmas, if you're listening to this on release day. And I'm so excited. And Angela is going to be leading us on our last part in John today. Yay. Merry Christmas week, you guys. (laughs) Okay, so kicking off this week, we are talking about um, Jesus, the light in the darkness. And so, Steph, I have a little question for you. I want to know, colored lights or white lights? Hmm. White lights on my tree, for sure, right now. But truly, at heart, I am still a child, and I love colored lights. Oh, really? Yes. That's funny. I would I would guess white because of the aesthetic, but that's yeah. what wins in your house. Yep. I am um, I'm team white lights, although my hubby is allowed to do colored outside the house. But now I'm so picky. I want warm white lights. I yeah. cannot stand the Those LEDs. LEDs. Oh, right? sorry I, if you like LEDs. Yes. <laughs> I have a real conundrum because my, my pre-lit tree, yes, I have a fake tree. You can hate me if you want. Um, but... <laughs> My pre-lit tree, which is beautiful and flocked and has pine cones, but it is LED. <laughs> and my tree topper has the normal, like, warm lights. So I oh. can't put them together because it looks terrible. Yeah. And so I have been without a topper now for two years in a row because I haven't bothered to go find another one. <laughs> well, I'm still using the one that my mom made the year we got married. And it's made with ribbon and a little angel head That's on neat. it. Now you know how many issues we have, you guys. (laughs) Well, let's dive in. So we're going to start, I'll just quickly recap. Um, In the last couple weeks, we did, uh, we kind of did an overview of John's writing style and his pattern and some of the key themes and phrases, things like witness, people being a witness and Jesus being his own witness to his Godness, the creation and Jesus' involvement and evidence in creation. We talked about Jesus as the bread of life. Last time we talked about flowing wine and living water. I think it was living water and the joy that comes with the new covenant. And that was pretty awesome. And so this week we're going to talk about Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world. So maybe do you, Stephanie, want to just start and read John eight twelve to kick us off? Sure. And I will also throw in there believe being another key. Yes, thank you. That you might believe. That runs through my head daily right now. Yes. 812, you said. Yeah. Then Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Mm. 
So we're going to do a little bit more application today. My hope is that as we walk away from this week's study, that some of those themes and thoughts that have been planted in our minds and our hearts will begin to translate to action and movement in our faith in Jesus, not just at Christmas this week, although certainly I hope that will be, but also moving forward into the new year. Um, So first of all, just a quick little recap. We talked, I think, in week one about creation, God's role in creation, Jesus' role in creation, that he was in the beginning. He was the word, still is the word, as Christ on earth, the word made flesh. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the agent of light, so to speak, in Colossians 1. And I'm just going to say, look this one up, you guys. Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is a really beautiful kind of telling of Jesus being the initiator and the activator of creation and holding all things together in him. And it's a pretty beautiful concept. And then he reconciles us to himself, um, which is powerful. So that's kind of my first point I want to touch on is just that he is the light for the world, both in the in the beginning at the agent of creation as the agent of creation and then holding the world together. But he's also the light specifically for mankind. Isaiah 9, let's flip back. So when Jesus speaks in John 8, he's actually fulfilling a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 9. And we're going to start at verse 2, and then we're going to read 6 and 7. I'm going to flip to it, but if you beat me there. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoil. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it. Yeah. Well, wait, I had to turn the page with justice and righteousness from <laughs> now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Oh, I love that last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this or will do this, my version says. Yeah. I always so, want to break out in Handel's Messiah when I read Yes. <laughs> the I'm doing an Advent study during the days my youngest and I are from Biola University. And this year they're following the Messiah. And each day it has a piece of art to look at and it has a section of a different style of music, but then also a piece from the Messiah. Um, and it's pretty powerful. Yeah, we're enjoying how that. How cultural of you. So very <laughs> cultural. My friend Sarah, she pointed me that way. So a couple takeaways from this Isaiah passage that really jumped out at me. One is the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, it says. And their bondage, something I want to note here, if you read very much of the Old Testament, you will see time and again, God's people are in bondage largely because of their own actions, their own sins. Sometimes it's directly the sin of someone else, but a lot of times it's God allowing them to go into a season of discipline. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for us to recognize because culturally we're we're about to go through, I think, some hard things in America that... I think in some in some ways will be the result of our actions as the church and some sort of lukewarm living, I guess. 
And I think we need to be willing to acknowledge that a lot of times when we're in a dark place, it's because of our own actions. Sometimes not, you know, not always, but that's not an accident. The Lord is not surprised by that. And he makes a way through it uh, to teach us in the middle of it. So the something else that jumped out at me here was they're not to fear the earth's fears or dread what the people of earth dread. And I think that's really applicable to us too, that we're not to, to panic or worry because of all the things everyone around us is panicking and worrying about. So I warned you a lot of application this week, but lurking to the earth leads to distress and darkness. And I think that's something pretty powerful. If Jesus is the light of the world, looking to him is going to be where we're going to find our hope. It's going to be where we're going to find our path and our guiding. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but looking to the things of the earth sometimes are just going to cause distress and hopelessness. Um, thoughts on that? I was just thinking, yeah, look like looking up, thinking of the psalmist asking like, mm-hmm. why are you downcast my soul? Like, yes. That concept of lift up your eyes, look yes. to the Lord. Funny, that just came up in my weekly girls Bible study this week, that passage. Must need to hear it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love, too, that it says he will increase their joy. God is going to do that. And we kind of talked about that when we talked about the wedding miracle that Jesus performed, that that was a sign. I loved that, that you brought Mm -hmm. up, that that was a sign of validation of who he was. When we're alienated in our sin and our darkness, Jesus, when we were alienated, Jesus reconciled us by his blood, and now we're blameless because of his blood, not because of us, but because of his blood. I love, too, this idea of continuing on in faith, being steadfast and stable and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And looking back again at this Isaiah passage, I think this idea of putting our hope in the promises of God, putting our hope in what he says will be the deliverance. Isaiah, all the way back here, thousands of years before Jesus appears, that hope had to be strong for generations in what was to come. And of course, we get to be on the other side of that. Now we place our hope in his coming again. Yeah. And I love, too, that he's so kind to us that he's given us these glimpses of what he's already done. We, we've talked about that all these four weeks. You know, let's go back and look at what he has done, what he is doing now, and what he will do. Christ does not leave us in darkness. And that, man, I'm holding on for dear life. <laughs> yeah, it's so encouraging to see the character of God and just his faithfulness and really even just his consistent message through history. Yes. I, I think I was thinking about that the last couple of days, just as I contemplated, you know, people who really struggle with the message of Christianity, with its validity, and um, just thinking about how, like, historians who study many things of antiquity, you know, have validated the scrolls, you know, that the as original books of the Bible were found on mm-hmm. separately validated them to be of all different time periods but to see now like we've compiled it in, in one book and we we yeah. don't think about it very often but but that God has painted this consistent picture over a huge period of time with prophecies f- being fulfilled and and this consistent story <laughs> from Genesis to Revelation, that like builds my faith so much. And yes. to see to see 
the truths that have not changed just continue to play out in our own lives and continue mm-hmm. to self-authenticate the Bible. I love how the Bible does that. And that is just so um, bolstering to my soul. A friend was just saying to me the other day, the church tradition that she was raised in, she said one disservice I think it did to me was that I learned about Christianity in these ages, in these periods of time. And so a lot of the stories of the Bible were really isolated. We read about Noah. Mm -hmm. We read about Adam and Eve. We read about Jacob. We read about Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den. And that it really, she said, it wasn't until I was an adult, really in seminary, that I started to see that thread that it's it's one story with lots of characters and generations that weave in and out. And that changed everything. And I, I think that's, man, that's so my passion to show when we looked at that parallel comparison of Genesis creation you know God created light Mm -hmm. he spoke it into existence and then John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God oh it's the same story and it's beautiful yeah so yeah well speaking of stories we're gonna pull out one that comes right before this in John 8 Before we see Jesus say, I am the light of the world, there's this little story tucked in. And there are some scholars that debate whether this was in the original version in this place. To me, it makes a lot of sense where it is. And so we're going to we're going to talk about why it makes sense and how it fits in there. We're going to read John 8, 1 through 11. And if you would, would you read that story for us, Steph? Sure. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left when the woman in the with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Hmm. So there are a couple of things that jumped out at me when I was reading this. And one, I don't know if this, if anybody else saw this, but it specifically says in one translation we caught her in the actual act of adultery, I think was the word, or the, 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 the act itself. You said, what did you say your version said? This, it does say this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Yeah. And it, I don't know if you guys, if, if you're familiar with scripture, but I hear in my mind when I read that other places where scripture says, don't even have any, don't even speak of the deeds that happen in the darkness. 
And they have literally probably spied on this woman to catch her in the actual act of adultery. So right there to me, that just jumps out and it says something to me about where their hearts and their minds are when they, you know, drag this woman out. And I think they are in their minds thinking they're the ones with open eyes. They're the ones that are going to bring the darkness to light. But really, if we're paying attention, they are the example of darkness trying to overcome the light. And we're going to talk about that in a second because we referenced that in week one. But I find it ironic. They think they're bringing, quote, dark deeds to light. And Jesus really puts them in their place and says, oh, really? (laughs) You got no sin? Cast Mm -hmm. the first stone. And what they're really wanting to do is they're wanting to condemn her to eternal darkness. They want to stone her in her sin, which means leave her in it, kill her in it. She's condemned. And yet Christ comes to offer the exact opposite. He offers us a way out of our life of sin, out of our place of spiritual death. And I think this is powerful because this is where we start to really talk about the application, how this knowledge of Jesus being the light of the world, bringing light into the darkness applies to how we live our everyday lives. And I want to look just real quickly. I'll just flip back to it. John 1, 5, if you guys remember in week one, we read this, but John 1, 5 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. One version says comprehend, but I think we see throughout all of scripture talking about that one story, darkness trying to overcome light, starting in the very beginning with the tempter coming to Adam and Eve and saying, did God really say wanting to bring darkness to overcome the light that God offers mankind? And yet what God does and what Jesus does is to call us out of that darkness. And I think it's pretty powerful when he says at the end here in verse 11, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then what? Go, sin no more. And I think that's a powerful takeaway that we need to really be thinking about as believers. We can't leave it at the manger. We can't leave it at the cross. We can't even leave it at coming out of the grave, but moving forward as followers of Jesus, Mm -hmm. he's calling us to walk out of a life of sin and walk into a life of obedience. And that's scary to some people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even what you said about the John one being sometimes translated like the the darkness did not comprehend it. That totally applies here too, because what you said was like the Pharisees didn't get it. They were clueless that they were the object lesson. And it reminds me of the verse in second Corinthians where Paul talks about like the, the gospel message being an aroma of life and then, Mm. or an aroma of death to those who are, who are perishing. And so just that idea that like, they didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. It was aroma of death to them. Wow. Yes. So powerful. If you think about it, share that. Maybe we'll share that in a quick follow-up email this week. Um, or, or if you find that reference, pull it out for us. Because I think that's such a powerful follow-up to that concept. Interesting, too, the, the Pharisees are modeling darkness with their own blindness. As you said, it's the aroma of death to them. Their misguided trust is in the law. So here's where the temptation comes. The temptation comes, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to follow all the rules. And we want to go back to putting our faith in those 
things that we do, those actions. But Jesus actually, in calling us to obedience, is freeing us. And I think this is really beautiful when we can start to grasp this, that our obedience is a response to the freedom that he calls us into. And it actually models the freedom then that we have in Christ. And I know that may sound a little convoluted, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more. One other thing I wanted to bring up, though, this contrast of darkness and light. I had not really paid attention to this, but Matthew 27, 45, and I think Matthew is the only gospel that specifically mentions it. I went digging. It says when Jesus was dying, that darkness fell over the land and it was for a period of time. And in John 20, when Mary goes to the tomb, it specifically says Mary went while it was still dark on the morning of the third day. And I picture in my mind, if you've ever been out walking at sunrise, we live on the East Coast and we can sometimes go out and see the sunrise over the water. Do you know that hush that comes and there's a almost a heaviness and a sadness, I feel like, in the dark, in the morning and aloneness. And when that sun comes up, there's this incredible breathtaking burst of like energy and hope and beauty. And I picture that like that morning beginning in the darkness and then that day continuing into light, the light of the world coming forth from the grave. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that reference where you flipping through? I did. It's Second Corinthians 2.15. Awesome. In case you guys want to write that down. Write it down. Write it down. <laughs> okay. So Jesus' light in our darkness releases us from sin and calls for responsive obedience. And I that word to me is really important. I've written that down a few times in my own note-taking. And that responsive obedience reveals his light and his life to the dark world. And I think this is really cool because it gives us a new understanding when we think in terms of I'm not, quote, being a good Christian so that God will love me. I'm not going to ask people around me who don't know Jesus to do good things or not say bad words or whatever that is so that they can be good people or gain God's favor or gain my favor even. But I'm, I'm making a decision to follow Jesus, to follow the leading that he lays out for us in his word because I'm responding to the love that he poured out on me, the, the, grace that he offered me when he spiritually raised me from the dead, when he freed me from captivity to my own sin. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just, I want to back to that scene with Mary at the tomb. I want to throw myself at at his feet, wrap myself around him and say, don't let me go wherever you want to go. I'll go. I'll follow you. And he, in this incredible way, uses our obedience to him to show the world what his life looks like. So I think what's kind of amazing is that our responsive obedience to God actually models who God is. It points people to who he is. And I think that gives a new weight to it, but also it's, it's kind of freeing and that I'm not trying to earn God's love. I'm not trying to, but any obedience that I have, any following that I do of Jesus, he's going to take that. He's going to multiply it. He's going to use it in others' lives to point them to himself. Mm-hmm. I love that. John one twenty nine. Look there for a second. I love when I hear your pages turning. 
<laughs> crackle, crackle. I picture your crinkly Bible pages and they're all marked up. You want to read that, John 1.29? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, let me tell you why I am sharing that, bringing that out, because this is John's first proclamation when Jesus comes onto the scene visibly as he is the prophet making the way, preparing the way, declaring who Jesus is. And the first thing he says about him is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the proclamation he makes. That's the the thing that he calls out. And those Israelites who are there, when he uses that phrase, Lamb of God, they know what that means, right? Oh, yeah. Which means, go ahead, you say it. (laughs) Well, they're they're thinking sacrifice. They're thinking uh, payment for sin. And I want to call that out because we've got this very, very dangerous mindset that's kind of sweeping through. I think the church right now, we're embracing a lot of of policies and beliefs about mankind that are very worldly, that God just wants us to be happy. God wants us to be at peace with one another. God wants us to be kind. And yes, a lot of those things will become a part of a reflection of God's character as we live in him. But the reason he came was to reconcile man to himself by raising us from the dead and removing the sin nature. Well, we still will battle that, but he makes us righteous by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus. And I really feel like that's important for us to get to grasp because it it combats a view that says God primarily came to bring social equity or reconciliation or equality or justice or all of these kind of big concepts and big terms that are, they're good in and of themselves, but they're not the end goal. And I would even argue they're pretty low down on the scale. What comes first is made righteous by the blood of the lamb. We become followers of him. We become purposed to live lives for his glory, first and foremost. And I don't know, I just, I've been sitting in that for a while. That that story that we mentioned above that I don't think is an accident coming right before John 8, 11, Jesus forgives the woman and then he calls her immediately to go and sin no more. He offers her freedom from condemnation to obedience. And I think if we can line those two things up, we'll get a better sense of what it means that the light of the world, the light for our darkness. He calls each one of us to receive his forgiveness and then believe him. There's that word again and follow him. Yeah. And then it's in the following and the obedience that we become lights ourselves. We become ambassadors of that light bringers of that peace and that justice and all of those things. Yes. But, But it's first through aligning ourselves with him. Yes. And you know, it's interesting. I went digging. There's a pattern in the miracles that Jesus performs, not always, but often When he performs a miracle, he immediately speaks of forgiveness of sins. One example of that, if you want to go look it up later, is Luke 5. Jesus multiplies the fisherman's catch. And I love this. It's so cool to me. He the the disciples are out fishing and and Jesus says, Cast your net on the other side. I don't know if you guys remember this. And 
they bring their nets back in and they've got so many that they can't haul them. And the immediate response, which seems so incongruous, but it's pretty powerful. It says Peter drops to his knees and he says, don't even look at me. I'm unclean. I'm a wicked, sinful man, basically. God performs a miracle for him of provision. And Peter responds by recognizing that he's not worthy of God's mercy. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just one. But if you go looking, you're going to find quite a few places when Jesus performs miracles. There's this immediate connection to I'm doing this so that you can see who I am. I am the bringer of righteousness. I am the bringer of life, of freedom from death, of freedom from your sin. Yes. Love it. Okay. Yeah, there's always you- that connection of like Jesus having power over the the natural world and the spiritual yes. world. Yes. And those those natural world examples pointing us to spiritual truths. Right. Which I love. Okay, let's go to Psalms real quick. And this probably some of you when we thought about Jesus being the light, this may have come to mind because this is a verse that We hear a lot, we see a lot, but we're going to read Psalm 119, and we're going to do 97 to 106. Okay. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. Mm. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, Mm. sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have solemnly sworn to keep your righteous judgment. Mm. And the last 107 says, I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Were you turning the page and I jumped ahead of you? I think I forgot that you said 107. (laughs) But it was on my other page, so I keep having this problem. (laughs) You know what? I think I said 106, but I jumped in there. Okay. So I, in my Bible, if you don't write in your Bible, I encourage you to write in your Bible because it becomes this really hallmark of the things that God's taught you over the years. And put the dates down when you see connections and put verses, cross-references. And it's easier to find things later when you're looking for them. Oh, I love it. It's so cool. So uh, I had written here, dwelling on the word brings wisdom and obedience. And then I have a little arrow that goes to obedience to the word leads to wisdom. And then a little arrow that goes to wisdom from the word drives us toward obedience. And then I drew arrows that circle around it because I see sort of a cycle, a pattern. Wisdom is gained from familiarity with the word and obedience to the word. And it even says, what does it say? I have more understanding than all my teachers. I understand more than the aged because I obey. Mm. I think that's so cool. This cycle that happens, the more familiar we are with God's word, the more familiar we become with him, the more we long to obey him, the wiser we become. And it even points out that I'm wiser than my enemies. I want to be wiser than my enemies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to outsmart them. So God's word is a lamp unto our feet. His word is the guide 
for our obedience to him. And then what do we know about Jesus? What does John call Jesus? The word. The word. (laughs) We follow him as we're following the written word. He is the word made flesh. And I get this picture of, oh my goodness, Jesus calling out to the disciples and saying, come follow me. And they run, get their brothers and they run, they say goodbye to their families or they don't even say goodbye to their families and they just run after him. I want to run after him that way. I want to know his word that intimately. Yeah. And there's something so magnetic about like John says in him was life and that life was the light of men. Like there's something like you talked about the sunrise earlier. Like there is an energy that comes with the sun and I think in the same way, like there's a, an energy and a life-giving quality to God opening our eyes to seeing the light of Christ yes. um, and how that just draws us in and and stirs our hearts and, and really just pulls us towards the Lord if he's been kind enough to open our eyes, you know? Yes. And as we're following him, I think it begins to pull others toward him. It's not me. I'm not dragging people along. He's doing that as he is alive in me. There's a, we watched last year, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it, but near where we live is this incredible theater that I still yet to go to, but it's Broadway quality theater, but it's scriptural Christian theater called Sight and Sound in Pennsylvania. And I am going there. I dreamed of working there in college. But last year they did a live, well, it wasn't a live, but it was a recording of one of their shows. And their shows are immersive. I mean, there are literally things flying from the ceiling and live camels coming down the aisles and you name it, they've got it. And they did, the show was called Jesus. And I will never forget the picture. And it was, it was almost a little cheesy, but it was so cool when Jesus went to call each one of the disciples and they portrayed them as these young, brash, wild fishermen, which honestly is probably what they were a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this, this exactly what you, the word you use, magnetic quality about him where they just were like boyish, like drop everything and run after him. And, you know, wives yeah. kind of, Okay, off they go, you know, and it was it was captivating to me and it gave me a new view of what that might look like. And that's what I want to look like. I want to have that, you know, people look at me and go, what in the world? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is after him. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, so I want to kind of tie this up with we're going to go to John three and I I'll read this one. Mm -hmm. We're going to start with John three sixteen and this will be very familiar to you. But we're going to jump ahead and kind of make a couple connections that I I hadn't made before we dug into this. So John 3.16, you'll know. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then I'm going to skip ahead to 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because Mm -hmm. their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works 
should be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I think there's something so powerful to be grasped here. We we have two choices. When we are confronted with the reality of who God is, with Jesus, the light of the world, we can say, oh, and run back to the darkness and stay in that place. Or we can say, let it all be exposed, Lord. Take it all. It's ugly. And transform it as I walk in obedience to you, as I accept that covering by your blood, that righteousness in who you are and the sacrifice that you made as the Lamb of God. And I love how it says at the end of 21, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So our family, I think I might have shared this in another one of our recordings. We've been working through a series on Colossians together. And one of the things that was brought out was the mystery, John, or I'm sorry, Paul talks about the mystery that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he made this distinction between it's not Christ and us. It's not, okay, I'm now a Christian. I'm going to do good stuff and I'll ask God to help me. No, it's Christ in us doing the work. And I think John says the same exact thing here. The world needs to see that God is doing the work. God is the one who freed us from our sins. God is the one by that same resurrection power, scripture says, who's going to enable us to follow after him, to obey his word. Mm -hmm. And that will then, exactly as you said, point back to his glory. And that's what we want, right? I want to be, I don't want to be LED lights. (laughs) I want to be warm, twinkling white lights maybe colored lights would be winsome and attractive too I don't know but (laughs) I want to be I want to be reflecting God's glory and I want people to see that anything good that happens in my life is his is from him is enabled empowered by him yes amen so okay so I'll just real quickly say you guys don't stop here because there are a bazillion things I had to cut out of my notes Exodus 26, when you have time, Leviticus 24, Revelation 21 and 22, there is symbolism galore throughout scripture with this idea of light. The lampstands in the tabernacle and the temple, symbolism of the light of God's presence, his actual no barriers presence in eternity. Man, Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the, the lampstands in heaven, and I think that's in those chapters, and then there's no sun and moon when John was seeing the the um, the picture of what heaven looked like. There's no sun and moon because God himself is the light of heaven. Right. The I mean, there are just so many. Another fun rabbit hole that if if anyone wants to go down it is um, <laughs> with Nicodemus and the whole oh, that yes. same theme of light and darkness. John. Yes really plays on that with Nicodemus. Um, So you see Nicodemus come to Jesus in the dark. And I think John uses that language intentionally. He's very, he's kind of like the example of the skeptical Jew. Mm -hmm. And he's coming to Jesus very much like in doubt and acknowledging that he's a good teacher but John's whole gospel is trying to make a distinction between 
those who truly believe and those who just acknowledge Jesus as being a good teacher or someone who can do amazing signs and wonders. Um, So glad you brought that up. Yeah. So if you just, if you study the parts with Nicodemus, um, it's really interesting. And then what you read a moment ago, Angela, um, the John three sixteen through uh, 21, like I know that um, I think a lot of people tend to think of that as Jesus saying that, but I've read some commentaries that offer that that may even be John kind of inserting a little bit there. Um, mm. So, so just not being sure, like if Jesus specifically said that to Nicodemus, but he did have other conversation with Nicodemus that was about that. And so it's really interesting. But then you see at the very end of John, after Jesus uh, dies and is buried, John makes this quick aside in John 19, uh, 39, Nicodemus, parentheses, who had previously come to him at night, parentheses, <laughs> also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. But this is, um, you know, during during the day. So um, anyways, I don't know. I just think it's interesting because it seems like John might be might be hinting at um, perhaps perhaps he's had a change of heart. And yeah. So, I don't know, it's fun to think about, but I just love John's witty, witty imagery there. Good rabbit trail. And also <laughs> another good place to really apply that. Look back and say, where where am I in all this? You yeah. Know, am I believing you? Am I am I coming to you in the dark? Am I coming to you in the light? Am I ready to run after you? Ooh, so good. Yeah. Yes. Just to kind of recap things that I'm hoping that you'll take away this week. God made everything in creation and he holds it together, including us. We talked about that in week one. He offers us freedom from death and darkness by his death and resurrection. And we can live in that freedom as we walk in responsive obedience. And I think that word is important, responsive obedience, because of the freedom that he's given us. And then we become those lights that point to him and his glory. And all of that is because he is with us. He is in us. We hope you've enjoyed this Advent series. And mm. we would love to hear how you've enjoyed it and what you've taken away from it. Um, and we look forward to just continuing to dig into the word with you and talk about how Jesus um, influences and guides our lives. Merry Christmas. We love you guys. We hope you have a wonderful blessed week. And then you wake up on Christmas morning and rejoice in Jesus, the light of the world.